All right, just a reminder that I will be leaving in the morning to fly to Tucson, and I'll be teaching at Tucson Bible Church for the next uh, three nights. And I'm going through the principles of, of testing in the life of Abraham. So there are 13 tests. That's how God t- p- takes us through spiritual growth. And so I'll be covering, in summary fashion, everything from Genesis 12 to 22 in three nights. So we'll be flying, flying low over Abraham's life. So pray for me and a safe trip out there. Scott Ulrich, who is an outstanding Bible teacher, Scott's going to be here. And he's also covering for me in uh, April, I believe on the 22nd of April, that weekend, I will be flying out to, flying up to uh, Preston City Bible Church. They're having an ordination that weekend, and I'm speaking at the banquet on Sunday night, and they're having the ordination service Sunday morning. I mean, the banquet is Saturday night, and I'll be speaking there, and then uh, Sunday morning, we're having the ordination, so, uh, and then I'll be flying back right after church, so that, too, Scott will be here then as well, so. Uh, he'll be covering for me. So let me see here if I have got the right. There we go. Don't have the right thing up here. There we go. Okay. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your uh, request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord by confessing sin if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have tonight to come before your throne of grace, to focus on your word, to study what you have revealed to us, knowing as the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15 that all Scripture is breathed out by you. And prior to that, he mentioned Scripture, meaning the Old Testament, that it was Old Testament scripture that brought him to maturity. So it is important to study the Old Testament and help us to understand its implications for our thinking and for our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Over the last couple of weeks, I have been talking, or a couple of lessons, actually, in Judges, I've been talking about the problems with religion, that religion is not 
Christianity is not a religion. Religion has to do with man doing certain things to and expecting God to be impressed, and then God blesses on the basis of works. Works are the basis for getting into the hereafter. Whatever the hereafter is, whether it's in Buddhism or Hinduism or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever, it, it's all on the basis of works. But Christianity is a relationship based on what Christ did on the cross and trusting and then trusting in Christ and then walking by the Spirit. And Satan is the great counterfeiter, as we've studied. He counterfeits. He appears as an angel of light, and his ministers appear as, as ministers of righteousness. His angels appear as ministers of righteousness. That means that they are going to be gr greatly disguised. And if you don't know the word of God, then you are going to be distracted and deceived by all manner of different false teachers and apostates that uh, use all the biblical language and uh, fool the uh, those who are ignorant and unaware. So tonight we're going to continue talking about counterfeit religion and talk about surprising disguises, and that's what we uh, what we see here. It's uh, interesting. I've been having a few email exchanges with a lady in Germany who recently became a believer, and I just by, as Tommy I says, by Calvinist luck, I happen to get on my, uh, I don't go to Facebook anymore. I haven't gone to Facebook in a couple of years, and I don't even want to look at it, but I do have Windows Messenger, and every now and then people will message me. And I kept looking at it going, there's a red dot there for something. And I realized that somebody had posted a message on the Dean Bible Ministries Facebook page. If I could figure out how to delete all that, I would. Over a year ago, I was very embarrassed. I finally found this. She said, well, I, I wrote you a year ago, and I haven't heard from you. Maybe I'll hear from you this time. And this was this uh, lady who had a Muslim background from Turkey. And she, as a young child, gone to Germany and was really looking for somebody to teach her the Bible. And she had a just a history of one quasi-cult after another. And some were, I would call, pure cults. Of course, Roman Catholicism is the biggest cult on earth. But you, that's what she's gone through. And she found Dean Bible Ministries, and she found Andy Woods, and so she's been listening to me and writing, and she wanted to talk, and so I got her hooked up. Since I'm not starting through Interlocked, which is she, every new believer needs an overview of the whole Bible. And that's one of the things that Interlocked does, and uh, Charlie Clough's framework pamphlet, pamphlet and I think the interlocked material is good. And I'm, as I said a few weeks ago, I'm doing double duty here. I need to train parents. I need to train uh, our prep school teachers. And I need to train you all. And so I'm just going to, instead of going through a regular book study, we're just going to do this overview, which will probably take a couple of years. But the Bible's not a small, small book, so it takes time to really do, even doing an overview it takes time. So I think this is going to be really good. But uh, Amos and Jen Kwok 
just started up another uh, interlocked on class that meets online, and they've got people in that class. They've got about 20, 30 maybe, and they're from all over. They've got some Americans. They've got Asians, Australians, um, all kinds. And so it's very inter- interesting, and so I had this lady get onto that, and she's just as pleased as she can be because that's the kind of thing she's looking for. But this is the danger out there is there is so much deception. Satan is the arch counterfeiter, and he deceives, and, and people who are deceived are sincere about their deception. They'll fight you about it, and we get a picture of that kind of deception here in, in, um, in Judges chapter 17. So just to sort of summarize with help us think through about religion is, first of all, we are all born with a sin nature. We're born spiritually dead. And as long as we're spiritually dead, everything comes from the sin nature. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter how many times you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how many times you memorize Scripture, how many times you pray or recite some prayer. All you have is a sin nature, and all you can do is produce that which is consistent with a sin nature until you are regenerated, until you are born again, until you believe in Christ. There's only one nature, and you may be the nicest, sweetest, cutest, most cuddly, well-behaved baby on the planet, but you're nothing but a sin nature wrapped up in the flesh. And that's not a good thing. So we have to remember, number two, that even our good deeds come from the sin nature. And that's why Isaiah says that all we are like an unclean thing. And he says, we. And he didn't have a mouse in his pocket. He was talking about we Jews. We who pride ourselves on uh, tzedakah which is the Hebrew word for righteousness. And if you talk to a Jew who is any what conversant with Judaism, uh, that word has come to mean charitable deeds or good works. And so that's what, what Isaiah says here. All of our tzedakah are like filthy rags. They're just, it's just garbage in God's sight. And it does, he's not talking about our unrighteousnesses. He's talking about all of the righteous, the good things that, that we do. And he says, all we, fade, we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So third point is we can do good before salvation. And people get all caught up in religion. And there are a lot of so-called Christian churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches. I'm not saying all Methodist churches. I didn't say all Presbyterian churches. I didn't say all Christian churches. I said, but there are many, many. I would say the vast majority of those that have a some sort of Christian denomination on the on the label on their sign are apostate. And if you study the history of denominations in America, all of the mainline denominations are apostate, and a lot of the um, a lot of other independent churches. And by independent, I don't don't mean independent Bible churches per se. I'm just mean independent churches that they're not really associated uh, with a denomination. 
So uh, we all do good. We do morality. And that's what most churches think is that morality is spirituality. But you can be very moral and you're not spiritual. You don't have, no, have a clue how to walk by the Spirit. You don't have a clue how to live a life based on God's grace. You're trying to impress God with how moral you are. And any unbeliever can be moral. I remember when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, I, they, they had a, a great deal that somebody had put together several years before where people could sign up and house sit for folks who were going out of town and wanted somebody at the house, somebody at times to uh, take care of their children, uh, things like that. And so there was one couple who hired me to house sit while they were gone. They were in a nice part of town in University Park, and they went to a big uh, Bible church. And she said, she told me they were, they did some remodeling and I was commenting on, she said, I always hire Jehovah's Witnesses because they have to work their way to heaven and so they do a better job than Christians do who operate on grace. <laughs> I thought that was a very damning comment for Christians. But that's the way it is, is that these religions are basically, they're trying to work their way to heaven and they don't understand anything about grace. And there's a lot of Christians that are that way. They're just nice, moral people. But morality only goes skin deep, flesh deep, shall we say. So Romans 7, 5, for when we were in the flesh, Paul says, he's talking about being unsaved. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were, uh, which were aroused by the law. See, that's the purpose of the Mosaic law not to teach you how to live right so you can go to heaven, but the, the law arouses sinful passions. Just tell your kids sometime, you did this at one time or another, said don't eat that candy. The first thing they did when your back was turned was they ate the candy. Because when somebody tells you don't do something, there's something in us that wants to go ahead and do it. It's called the sin nature. So morality is not what's going to get you anywhere. Now, I'm not saying immorality is better. I'm saying that morality, though, isn't the same as spirituality, and you have a lot of people who are Christians who are just trying to be moral so that they can somehow please God and, miss, and not miss any blessings. So the problem with religion is, in point four, is that we either walk by means of the Holy Spirit or the sin nature. That's it. That's the only two options. You're born with a sin nature. The only thing you can operate from until you are saved is the sin nature. But once you're saved, you change from what the Bible calls a natural man or a soulish man. The Greek word is psukikos, from the word suke meaning soul. That's where we get the word psychologist, the study of the soul. So um, you, you can only produce sin... Are, are only produce fleshly works from the sin nature. And morality is part of the Pharisees were very moral. But a lot of morality is nothing more than self-righteousness, so it's a real problem. So it, once you're saved, though, then you can walk by, by the Holy Spirit. But everything from the sin nature is going to be motivated by self-righteousness and arrogance, and it always becomes self-destructive. Romans 8, 3 through 6 is an extremely significant passage. Now, I want to go through this 
And I want to make a comment and reference it back to what we studied on Sunday morning. Because this is just some new thoughts that I've had percolating on the back of my brain for several years, a number of years. So in Romans 8.3, Paul says, For what the law could not do, what couldn't it do? A, it couldn't save you, and B, it couldn't make you spiritual. For what the law could not do, it could not free you from the sin nature. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. Flesh always has that sense of the sin nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He doesn't say sinful flesh, but he looked like a human being on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, it doesn't say the law is fulfilled in us. It says the righteous requirement, because that's what the law did, was it laid down an, an absolute criterion that nobody could meet. Nobody could obey it perfectly. But we can be righteous because we have received the righteousness of Christ. And the minute, the second the nanosecond that you believe Christ died on the cross for your sins, at that instant, you were given the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed to your account. You, it, you weren't infused with it. That's Roman Catholicism. They, they translated it, make you righteous. And that goes back to the, uh, the, the Vulgate, the translation uh, of the Vulgate by... Jerome, who misunderstood what the Greek dikaios meant, dikaio meant, and he said made righteous instead of declared righteous. He missed the point there. So in Roman Catholicism, you're made righteous. That means something, you're going to change morally, but you're not changed morally when you're saved. You're changed legally. Your status before God is changed. So Paul says, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, one of the things that we should note here from verse 3 is that what we studied on Sunday morning was that part of the law is the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And I've pointed this out for years, that the standard for loving your neighbor is your, your love for yourself. That's setting the bar pretty low because we all love ourselves. Even people who say, I hate myself. I'm going to kill myself. Well, the only way, reason you hate yourself is because you've disappointed yourself and you're not living up to your expectations, realistic or otherwise, and so you want to go kill yourself because you're so self-absorbed. But... You know, we all love ourselves. That's what Paul writes when he writes about husbands loving your wives. He says, for no man, so this is a universal principle, no man, in other words, no one ever hated his own flesh. That's what the Holy Spirit says. That's not what I say. It says no one ever hated their own flesh. So, so all this psychology that says the big problem is your self-image, that's what Robert Schuller preached when he wrote his book, The New Reformation, and all of this nonsense. That's just, that just, that just all wrong. 
So what we have here is is that the law couldn't do it. So so the standard in Leviticus 19:18 is addressed to all of Israel, believer and unbeliever. And it's a low bar. It's a low expectation. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, uh, do do the kinds of things for them that you do for yourself. But when Jesus gave a new commandment in John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, I give you a new command that you love one another, not your neighbor, because your neighbor can be a believer or an unbeliever. Love one another, so that's restricted to the body of Christ. Love one another as I loved you. Wow, that really sets the bar high. In fact, it's impossible. I can't generate that on my own. That's why Sunday morning I connected that to the fruit of the Spirit. See, the only command that God gave to Israel was love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that relates to loving all mankind because in the parable of the Good Samaritan, your neighbor is anyone who comes into your periphery that has a need or has a problem and, and you can help with it. So that's directed to everybody, whether it's an unbeliever or a believer. But John 13, 34, and 35 is addressed to believers in the body of Christ in the royal family that we are to love one another as Christ loved us, and we can't do that on our own. Uh, that was not addressed to the Old Testament because because they did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit or the filling of the Spirit, and they didn't walk by the Spirit. They didn't have that sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit, so he's not going to be producing that distinctive love that is part of the fruit of the Spirit. So this raises the bar on on our understanding of the biblical commands to, to love one another. So in Romans 8, 5, Paul goes on to say, for those who live, now he's talking about Christians, those who live according to the flesh, they're living according to their sin nature, they're not walking by the Spirit. Those who live, and here, uh, here like in Galatians 5, it's according to the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's what they're thinking about all the time. But those who live according to the Spirit, notice he doesn't use the same grammar that he uses in Galatians 5.16, walk by means of. You don't have in plus the dative, in numity. What you have is kata plus the accusative indicating it's talking about a standard according to the standard of the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now that phrase, the things of the Spirit, uh, is a technical term. How do, well, how, why do you say that? Well, if you go to 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 9, there's a, first of all, there's a quote from Isaiah, and then all the way through down to about verse 14 and 15, you see the use of the phrase, the things, and what, it all goes back to the quote from the Old Testament, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has entered into the mind of man. What are those things? Well, it's revelation. So all the way through there, you get down to 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says, 
the natural man, that is the soulish man, the unbeliever, cannot understand what? The things of the Spirit of God. Well, contextually, the word the things refers to that which is revealed, not that which is learned through empiricism or rationalism. And so when we get down here and we see, um, according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, based on 2 Corinthians 2, is revelation. The Word of God, the instructions from the Word of God. And so Paul concludes in Romans 8, 6, for to be carnally minded is death. That is, to be fleshly minded is death. That's not talking about eternal death. That's talking about, and it's not talking about spiritual death, it's talking about carnal death. You're living like a spiritually dead person, and so you're not experiencing the life that Christ promised. Jesus said, I didn't come like a thief to steal and destroy, I came to give life and to give it abundantly. But if we're living on the basis of our sin nature, we're not going to realize that abundant life that Jesus uh, has provided for us. So what we see here is that religion comes out of the flesh. All kinds of religion and lots of the theologies of the spiritual life may surprise you, but uh, there are probably about nine or ten minimum models for the spiritual life. How does a Christian grow? And there was a very important book that came out of... uh, came out in the early 80s called Five Views on Sanctification, uh, edited by a man named Melvin Dieter. And I don't remember all the guys who wrote in that, but you had a Reformed, a Wesleyan view, you had a Pentecostal holiness view of the spiritual life, you had a Reformed view, that's the Calvinist view of the spiritual life, you had the Keswick view of the spiritual life, which was higher life, and we would agree with most of what they say. In fact, we would agree with a lot of what the Reformed guys say. But the one thing that's missing in both the Reformed view and the um, Keswick view is what do you do with the sin after salvation? They assume that, well, Christ just automatically keeps cleansing you from sin. There's no understanding of walking by the Spirit and there's no understanding of the importance of confession of sin. So John Walvoord, who was uh, one of two, most people would say he's one of the two closest men to Lewis Berry Chafer, and he wrote the article on dispensational sanctification. And that wouldn't differ a whole lot from what you've heard me teach and uh, other pastors that you know uh, teach who have been influenced by Lewis Berry Chafer and John Walford. So uh, this is what we're talking about here. The, and the two men that I talked about, I've heard this from lots of different sources that, 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 that back in the early 50s, people said that, that John Walford and Bob Thiem were the two men who most clearly represented Lewis Berry Chafer all the way down the line. So the problem with religion is that Christianity is a relationship and not a religion. All religious systems, cults, myth-based religions, share a common share in common the failure to distinguish the creator from the creature. Break it down sooner or later, anything that is not based on biblical Christianity confuses the issue in terms of the creator-creature 
distinction. And that's very important. You're starting to worship in some way the creation instead of the creature. You're, if it's works, you're worshiping yourself and your own morality. And that means you're worshiping a creature. So we get into chapter 17 in Judges. And it's an introduction, as I've said, to the apostasy of the tribe of Dan. The real point between 17 and 18 is the tribe of Dan goes completely apostate and introduces an idolatry into Israel. But the lead-up to it, the background to it, is given in chapter 17. So chapter 17, which we've talked at, to one degree or another, the last three lessons, chapter 17 has two parts to the introduction. The In 17, 1 through 5, you have the introduction of the main characters. And you're, we're introduced to Micah and to his mother and to the idol. Those are the three main characters. And then in verses 6 through 13, we're introduced to the fourth main character, and that's the apostate uh, priest. So this apostate priest comes along, and he is going to um, be hired by Micah to be a priest at this shrine that, that he has built. And so when we start off looking at the passage, we're told that, that um, uh, and we look at this whole passage, which is focusing on Dan and what happens to the tribe of Dan. Once we realize that, we realize that there's not anything really good said about Dan in the book of Judges. In fact, at the very beginning in Judges chapter 1, as it tells what happens to the Israelites after the conquest, you get to the last part of chapter 1, and you have two or three tribes that are complete failures and never really take the land that God gave them because they compromised. And one of those is the tribe of Dan. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. See, they were given all the land that is along the coastal plain, which is called the Shephelah. And all that land along the coastal plain from from down uh, south of Tel Aviv today, down towards Ashkelon, and all, all the way up that, that coastal plain, which is a beautiful area, was given to Dan, but they couldn't take it. Uh, the Amorites had chariots. They had uh, a better army, and so they ch and because Dan wasn't trusting God, they were chased back up into the mountains. So uh, they don't have a home. So they're looking around trying to steal it from somebody. That's what happens in chapter 18. But when it starts off, we learn that Micah is living in, and his family are living in the mountains of Ephraim. And Ephraim doesn't have a good rap either when you look in the book of Judges. In fact, not much is said good about, uh, uh, about Ephraim. If we read in Judges 129... Uh, just prior to the uh, description of Dan, uh, we're told, Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. So here's a map, because y'all probably don't remember where any of these places are. And in the middle here, on this tan strip here, that was the original land that a tribal allotment given to Dan. Ephraim is the purple, which is much larger, and then the 
Yellow over here was Benjamin. Benjamin uh, really sort of assimilated into Ju Judah. So that's the area where all the action is in this story. And then the Danites are going to come along in chapter 18 and go up and take uh, capture Laish and uh, uh, massacre the uh, Phoenicians who lived there. So when we blow that up, here's Gezer. Gezer is right on the border of, of Ephraim and Dan. And so the Philistines, or the, uh, who was it, the Ammonites, Amorites are there, and they're not going to uh, let them uh, let them conquer it. Um, these were the, the Canaanites there. And so they're not going to uh, give it up. So that's that's a problem. So somewhere in this area, we don't know where, is where you see um, where you see Micah and his and his family. So we've gone over that. But when you think about the Edomites, excuse me, the Ephraimites, then we have to remember some of the things going back there. There's um, in this story we have the emphasis on three tribes: Ephraim. Levi and Dan. Now, the Levites did not have an inheritance, so they are to live in the 48 different cities that were set aside for the, for the Levitical priests. And what we are reminded of when we read Ephraim is Ephraim failed in Judges 29. And then later on in the Gideon War, they don't respond at first to Gideon's call against the Midianites. And then after he has his initial victory, they come up and they're indignant and angry with him about not being called up to fight the Midianites. And he, he kind of smooths things over uh, and very well and gets past that. But then in the next cycle with Je uh, Jephthah, uh, Jephthah goes to war against the Ammonites, and he didn't call the Ephraimites up either. And that's kind of interesting. You have Gideon doesn't call the Ephraimites up, and, and uh, Jephthah doesn't call them up. So apparently there's something negative about the, the Ephraimites. And after Jephthah defeats the Ammonites, there's antagonism between the Gileadites. Now see, this area over here is, called, is where Gilead is, and... And so the, the, you have Jabesh-Gilead, Ramoth-Gilead. Gilead is just another term for the Transjordan area. And so here you have the Jordan River between Manasseh and Gad. And so the Ephraimites are trying to cross over. And the uh, Gileadites have set out a, uh, a guard there at the ford and they don't want to let the, let any Ephraimites come across, and so they're, uh, they would challenge them, and the word that they would say, they would ask them to say shibboleth. But the Ephraimites had a speech impediment, or it was part of their, uh, their accent, and they could only say sibboleth. They could, you have two letters in Hebrew that look like, a, almost like a W, and there's a dot Either, if it's on the right, it's an S-H. If it's on the left, it's an S sound. So it's just, and they couldn't get it right. And so if they couldn't get it right, the, the uh, Gileadites treated them like an enemy, and they slaughtered 42,000. That's a serious civil war. And so that was just two judges back with, with, with Jephthah. 
So when, as soon as the mountains of Ephraim are mentioned in Judges 17, we ought to hear in the background some sort of music playing that indicates that something bad is about to happen. It's not going to be, uh, not going to be good. And as we went through this, we talked about the, the, these, these, uh, the religious cover that's here and how they use Yahweh, Elohim. Um, they talked about uh, other aspects of, of worship as if it was correct, but it wasn't. And so we're reminded of what, second, what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5, talking about the latter times. That's the whole church age. I often hear people say, we must be in the latter times or the last days. Well, last days is a term that refers to the last days of Israel, and latter times covers the whole church age. So, yes, we're living in the latter times. We're not living in the last times. We're not living in the last days. That's the tribulation. We're not there yet. So Paul says in the latter times, which included his time, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. I remember hearing somebody teach on this when I was in high school and was saying, well, see, that applies to our generation. Yeah, it applies to a lot of generations, if you know anything about history. It's the church age. Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We certainly see that today, but that's what was going on in the time of the judges. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. See, that's what religion is. It's holding on to a form of Christianity, but denying its power. Uses all the right words. Holds up the Bible, says, this is the word of God. I am what it says I am. I, need, I, I do what I says I'll do, and on and on and on. And so when we look at Micah, we see a man that has some significant moral failures and spiritual failures. So first of all, he's a thief. He stole 1,100 shekels from his mother. Now, by comparison, each of the five lords of the Philistines ponied up 1,100 shekels to give 5,500 shekels to Delilah in order to betray Samson. And compared 5,500 shekels to what Michael will pay the, this Levitical priest, uh, room and board plus 10 shekels a year. So a shekel was a lot of money. If you could live on 10 shekels a year, uh, not counting room and board. So that was a lot of, lot of money. And so his mother has a, a lot more. So she's pretty wealthy. And he stole 1,100 shekels from his mother. So he's a thief. What's his uh, motivation for giving it back? She pronounced a curse on the thief. That's in verse 2. She uh, uh, pronounces a curse on it, so he doesn't want to be cursed. So right away you understand he's, suspicious. he's superstitious. He's superstitious, and he thinks that that curse has some kind of power over him. And then when he gives the money back, his mother blesses him. So now he's all happy. That's all in uh, the second verse. 
but he's self-righteous. He's holier than thou. Or she is, rather. She's holier than thou. She originally dedicated the entire 1,100 shekels for uh, God. 1,100 shekels for Yahweh. And then what happens? And she, then she's going to, uh, she, this, she dedicated it to Yahweh, but to build an idol of Yahweh. That's really mixed up. She's going to build an idol for Yahweh, and she's putting these 1,100 shekels to it. That's what she did. She dedicated it. But then when he gives her the 1,100 back, she only gives him 200 of it to go build the idol. Wait a minute. What happened to the other 900? What, she suddenly thought better of the whole deal and said, man, I better keep some of this for myself? What's going on here? So there, there's this superficial self-righteousness that is full of apostate doctrine, disobedient to the Mosaic law. Uh, the, this, is, this is interesting background here. I would uh, give you a test and say write out the Ten Commandments, but you probably couldn't write out ten no matter how you counted them. But Jews and Protestants count them one way. Roman Catholics count them another way. Anglicans count them another way. I bet you didn't know that. So that, that and so in this is from the Ten Commandments. The uh, verse two says, "I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage." And Jews and Protestants both include that as part of verses three through six as the first commandment. But Roman Catholics see that as two different commandments, and then they split the last one in half, which is really strange. So the point, my point is that the first commandment has to do with worshiping God alone and not any idols. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. That's the word pestle. That's the word that... Uh, Micah's mother uses. She u- actually uses two words, but that's uh, that's one of them. So she um, is violating the law, and he's violating the law. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So Micah has broken that idolatry commandment, and he's broken the law of the central sanctuary, which we've studied the last couple of lessons in Deuteronomy 12, you have the law of the of the uh, central sanctuary, and so she is. They're building this this idol, and it's also referred to as a teraphim. And a teraphim is a small household idol. So what Micah does is not only set up his own uh, on the basis of his own decision, doing what's right in his own eyes. He's setting up his own place of worship, but he constructs his own articles of worship that are used inside his apostate temple. And the passage tells us 
that he uh, makes three things. He makes the shrine. He makes an ephod, which is a priestly garment like a tunic that is highly decorated, indicating that somebody is, is, uh, is a priest, and teraphim. And teraphim, the I-N is a ending, is a plural, and these were household idols. And so they, people would have these little household idols they could pray to in their house, or they kept them as good luck charms or something like that. And uh, in Zechariah 10.2, Zechariah says, for the idols, and there the word is teraphim, the idols, the teraphim, speak delusion. The diviner, the diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. So the conclusion to that introduction, very brief, but it packs a lot into it, is then the writer tells us in those days, there was no king in Israel. Why could they do that? There's no king, not a human king, but they have rejected God as king. Deuteronomy makes it clear God was their king. So they've rejected God and they have replaced them with themselves. They're just, and this is like, like uh, liberalism. If you go back, we did this last night in the History of Doctrine class going through issues in 19th century religious um, Protestant liberalism in Europe and then in America. Basically, what they did was they got rid of God. God's dead. God's gone. And they replaced God with a projection of man in one form or another. And, and so they're worshiping themselves. And that's, that's Romans chapter 1. They are worshiping themselves, and they are uh, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So that's what's happening in Judges 17.6. So then we come to the next verse in Judges 17.7, which reads, Now there was a young man. So this is, you, first you have the Micah, now you have this young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite and was staying there. <clears throat> so there's a few things that we have to figure out here. And one of these is that, uh, what does it mean as a young man? He is a na'ar, that's a Hebrew word for young man, and it would refer to someone from adolescence to the age of 30. You could not be ordained or function uh, as a Levite or priest until you were 30 years of age. So he's under 30. He's probably, I would guess, in his uh, mid to late 20s. Later on, when the, uh, the, five, uh, the five people, the five scouts from Dan come, they're going to recognize his voice, which tells us that, that he's familiar to them from somewhere. So he had traveled to the area of Dan before or something because he's um, identified as a sojourner. So there's a young man from Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is David's future city, but this is a black mark against Bethlehem here. Bethlehem is David's future city and, of course, the birthplace of our Lord. But here you have this Levite who will lead them into idolatry and apostasy. So this is uh, not a good thing for Bethlehem to have this in their background. Uh, third thing that we see is that he is called 
He's, he is a young man from Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, so that was where he lived. That doesn't mean he was a Judahite because he's a Levite. But he lived there, and that was what, in Deuteronomy uh, 18, you have the regulations for Levites, and there were 48 Levitical cities, and they were to live in the midst of all of the different tribes of Israel. And their reason, I mean, their purpose was that they were to teach the Scripture, teach the law uh, to the people. Uh, that was his calling, but he has rejected that on the basis of the Bible. So he's uh, from Bethlehem. He's left Bethlehem. He's left Judah. When it says of the family of Judah, that's probably a general statement or it indicates it's, it could be talking about Bethlehem, uh, but it probably relates to the fact that he was just identified with, with uh, Judah by living in Judah uh, because it then says it's, he's a Levite. Fourth, he's nameless. And so far, but what we discover in the punch line of the chapter down in 1830 is that his name is Jonathan and he's Moses' grandson. The problem is you've got a mistranslation there in the Hebrew. They changed the word, the name, so that it wouldn't be uh, son of Moses, but son of Manasseh. You see, they stuck an N in there, and that changed the word, but it's a son of Moses. So think about this. A grandson of Moses means that this happened pretty early in the period of the judges. So you had this level of apostasy, as chapter 2 indicates, as soon as the elders died off, uh, the nation went apostate. So uh, uh, he's going to... Here's somebody who's known. He's from famous family, so people are going to follow him because he's somebody. He's a name. Fifth, he's the one who is a traveler. He's a sojourner. Uh, he was uh, staying there. Uh, has that idea? The word is ger, which can mean sojourner or abiding there, but it's not permanent. He's a tra- traveling around. He's looking for something. He, notice he's not traveling towards Shiloh. He's not traveling towards the tabernacle. He's just looking around, and, and all the Levitical priests were to show up at the feast days for the uh, tabernacle every year to give service there. So he's, he's this traveler. And so Micah asks him, says, where do you come from? And he says, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. I'm on my way to find a place to stay. I'm just looking around, seeing what happens, and and he's looking for God's will. Where does God want me to live? And so this this is a this is going to be a problem for her for him. Um, so in verse ten, Micah said to him, "Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me." So the, the way a lot of Christians work in trying to figure out what God wants them to do, as soon as they get a, their first opportunity, they jump at it and say, "Well, that ought to be God's will for my life." And so he looks at this. This is an opportunity. And Micah wants, says two things. I want you to be a father and a priest. Now, the term father was often an honorific title that was given to a prophet. So here he's, he could be using that. It's interesting that the mother is named in this story. Um, 
or excuse me, the mother is not named and the father isn't mentioned. So the father apparently is not on the scene and you've got a nameless mother. Now, in Samson's case, we had a nameless nameless mother, but all the women except for Delilah were unnamed. And so the author there is kind of making a point that the women are not that relevant. But this woman seems pretty relevant because she's the one who's really behind the apostasy that, that leads to the building construction of the idol. And one reason that's possible for why she's left nameless is because like in a parable, when people aren't named, it sort of universalizes them. And so they become a representative of a type. And so what the author could be indicating here, and I think there's very likely, is that this woman sort of represents most of the mothers in Israel. They're apostate, and they're just already giving themselves over uh, to promoting uh, false religion, just kind of a cultural religion that doesn't have anything actually to do with the Torah, but uses all the God, right God words and uh, terminology. So then Micah offers him to come be a father and a priest to me, and I'll basically pay you room and board. I will give you a suit of clothes and your sustenance, your food, room and board, and 10 shekels of silver per year. So that tells you about how much it would cost to take care of yourself, to have money, extra money for, for a year, 10 shekels. So that makes 1,100 shekels look pretty impressive. When you, when you factor it in, and the 5,500 that were offered to Delilah, she would have been one of the richest women in the world. So he tells him to dwell with me, be a father and a priest to me. And the Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So he just comes right into the, uh, right into the family. Then in verse 13, we get to the punchline. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. It's like the Levite is like a good luck charm. Religion becomes just superstition. And that's what it is for a lot of Christians. They use God terms. They'll tell you to, you know, be blessed. And they'll use all this verbiage, but they don't have a walk with the Lord. They don't have a thimbleful of correct theology. They don't know the Bible. Uh, they worship a Jesus that's a figment of their imagination. And if they've been influenced by uh, Protestant liberalism, the concept of the Christ is nothing more than a projection of the best that humans have to offer. And you're basically wor worshiping a, 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 a superhuman now, what have we learned? What are some things that we need to pay attention to here? Well, first of all, this <clears throat> chapter represents one of the lowest points in the history of the nation Israel because this lays at the very beginning of the period of the judges, it lays a foundation for religious apostasy. That, that shrine that's going to develop in chapter 18 up in Dan is where... Um, uh, Jeroboam the first will establish a golden calf and a major religious center, one of two, one in Bethel and one in Dan for the northern kingdom. And so what we see here is that the apostasy of this one man influences an entire tribe, which is representative of the apostasy of the nation. Just this one man, what Micah does, 
and setting up this idolatry and hiring Moses' grandson as a priest is going to send the tribe of Dan into apostasy and then from them to the whole nation. And you can go back in church history and you can point out people who went off the rails in their theology. People like Friedrich Schleiermacher said, you can't trust anything in the Bible, but it makes us feel good. And that's really the essence of religion is having this feeling about God consciousness. And it turned Christianity into nothing more than subjectivism. And all of German Protestant uh, liberalism came out of Schleiermacher, developed from him. And so you trace that. You can come into uh, the United States and you can trace trace a lot of bad things uh, back to the Second Great Awakening and things that came out of the Second Great Awakening and the emotionalism uh, of the Second Great Awakening and all of that. And so you can go back and you can point out key individuals who, because of their influence, they shifted uh, a whole culture away from the Bible. So just because you go to a church and they sing the right kind of religious songs, Christian hymns or Christian worship songs, and just because the pastor gets in the pulpit, holds a Bible, holds it up in the air, talks, uses the, all the right verbiage and terminology doesn't mean it's biblical. Doesn't mean it has anything to do with uh, Christ or Paul because they have twisted it into nothing more than self-worship. Uh, second, so the use of proper religious terminology is not a sign of spirituality. It's just a sign that, you, that you're twisting things. That's why when at least in my experience, when I'd sit down and I'd have to read Schleiermacher or read any of these other guys like Feuerbach or Hegel, whatever, and they just so dis... You don't know what they're talking about because they use all the words like Christ and redemption and uh, spirituality, but they don't mean what the Bible means by those terms. They've made it all up. And that's what happens in so many of the mainline denominations. Now, they've gotten, a, they've gotten away from um, the standard uh, liberalism of the 19th century, and they've shifted uh, several times to try to move back towards something that uh, seemed to be more palatable to people. But it's still that using the terminology in ways that just promote a good f- feeling about about Christianity and what they're doing. Number three, religion, which is nothing more than morality, doesn't do anything to restrain immorality. Look at Micah uh, in this episode. uh, And the young Levite, even the priests of Baal and Dagon are all religious. But it's false and it destroys the nation. So it does nothing to restrain immorality. Eventually, morality turns into immorality. That's what Paul says. How do you know the works of the flesh? Well, the works of the flesh, they are pretty bad. But arrogance always goes to things that are really bad eventually. The fourth thing we've learned is that spirituality is a relationship with God based on the completed work of Christ on the cross. And once we trust Christ alone for our salvation... Then we have to decide how are we going to grow as a Christian. 
And some people just get off the path right away, and they're growing through good deeds and morality and feel-good music. But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says we are to walk by means of the Spirit. You have to confess sin, keep short accounts, 1 John 1, 9, and you have to apply what you learn. You have to apply it to your thinking. You have to apply it to what you say and what you do. It's not about emotions and feeling. They are not the criteria for anything. That's just religious activity. A fifth thing that we learn is that Micah rejected the divinely ordained place of worship at Shiloh, at the tabernacle, and all of the ritual associated with the Levitical uh, sacrifices and the Levitical offerings, and made up his own. That's essentially what happens with Friedrich Schleiermacher, Ludwig Feuerbach, and David Strauss, and the other leaders in the 19th century German Protestant liberalism, is they said the Bible doesn't mean anything, you can't trust it, we can't believe it, we can use those words because it makes people feel good, and that's what we need is that right kind of God feeling. And, and they made up their own religion. Six, religion doesn't always deny the teaching of Scripture, but it often adds something and usually twists it. In the case of charismatics, Pentecostal charismatics, they offer a post-salvation experience, which is nothing more than emotion, and they falsely call it and wrongly call it the baptism by the Spirit, and it gets people off course in terms of their spiritual life and spiritual growth. So in conclusion, the only solution is to stick with the Word of God, to stick with the text of Scripture, and to just bury yourself in it and make it your life and your heartbeat, and nothing will be wrong with that. Some people may think you lost your mind because you go to Bible class three times a week and you get up every morning and you read your Bible and you memorize Scripture and you pray, but you and I know that that's the only key to having a successful life. And if you're not doing that, uh, you won't have a successful life. And a successful life doesn't mean you don't have problems. Sometimes if you're doing all those things, you're going to have more problems. Because the devil has drawn a target in the middle of your back and a big bullseye on you, and the Lord's going to allow you to be tested like he allowed Job to be tested. And the Lord Jesus told Peter, said that Satan has asked permission to sift you. So we may be sifted, we may be tested, and we probably will be because as James uh, 1, uh, 2 through 5 points out, that we're to count it joy when we encounter various trials or various tests because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And success isn't having the trappings of, a, of success according to a materialistic culture, but success is living a Christian life well. That doesn't mean you don't blow it. doesn't mean you don't sin. In fact, what's going to happen is the older you get, more mature you get as a Christian, the more sin you're, the more you're going to realize how sinful you are, that sin permeates everything. But that just drives you more and more to the grace of God. And that's the point. That's a successful life. A successful life is what shows up well at the judgment seat of Christ, 
not what shows up well today. We can't tell. You can't look at your life and say, okay, I'm going to get a B plus or a D minus or a C, C average and everything. We can't tell. Only God can tell, and he is the perfect judge because he's omniscient, and what counts is what shows up at the judgment seat of Christ. And understanding that is our means that you're getting a personal sense of your eternal destiny. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be challenged by your word that we must learn to walk with you, walk in the light, walk in the truth, walk by means of the Holy Spirit, not walk according to the flesh or the sin nature, but it just permeates everything in our life, Lord, and we just struggle so. But that tells us that you're working in our life and we're growing and we're going in the right direction and keep us from the flaws and failures of arrogance and always looking to your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.